Last night I dreamt I went to the innocence again. It seemed to me I stood by the rotating door leading to the entrance, and for a while I could not enter, for the doors were spinning and I couldn't stop them. I called in my dream to George the doorman and had no answer, and peering through the spinning door I saw that the condo was uninhabited. No pollution came from the top of the complex, and I gaped at the spinning door forlorn. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed with a sudden urge to pass gas. And, wait, no, uh, no, I was able to walk through the doors and see the hallway, and it was as wide as ever, carpeted, mixed with white and blue tile. Sometimes, when I thought the stain had finally disappeared, it would appear again in the middle of the blue carpet right after the tile ended. I came to the elevator suddenly and stood there with my heart beating fast and tears filling my eyes. This was the innocence, my innocence, and I felt like my innocence would be lost forever. This is Blinding Innocence. Welcome to The Innocence, where it's a dream wrapped in a nightmare, wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in rice paper, and dipped in a delicious peanut sauce. It is to be known that Duanier Remington got his inspiration to start Blinding Innocence after finishing Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Long before it was required reading in high school, Remington picked up an old copy while staying at an old, rustic, brown, creaky, musty, damp, claustrophobic, 70s-inspired cottage by a lake. It was a vacation saturated by endless downpours. As a young writer, he vacationed alone to give himself the chance to fill his head with ideas that could turn into pages of a delicious text. With a canoe trip canceled for the day, he cozied up with the yellow pages of Rebecca and fell in love with the gothic twists and sordid turns. Would love always be this painful? He had yet to really fall in love, but reading Du Maurier's classic, he already knew the answer. For Remington, the answer would always be yes. It would always be tragic and dramatic. For him, love would be dissected and analyzed and turned into a melodramatic soap opera, something the world had never seen. Rebecca planted the seed, and Blinding Innocence became the forest. The past few days at the Innocence had been life as usual. Inspector Nards and Wiener, his associate, were a presence as they walked throughout the halls of each floor, meeting with different tenants and learning about their alibis, looking for clues in their stories and hoping another body would not turn up anytime soon. Nards was often seen standing outside of the building with his pipe and a small notebook, flipping pages and ruminating as blue smoke floated around him a la Casablanca. Something in his gut told him that this murder was different. He shifted a bit and then realized it was the spicy burrito. Both sets of cheeks, 
the ones up here and the ones down there. Oh, they erped. And then he huffed another mouthful of smoke from his pipe. This murder was different. He knew it. He had solved many of the recent murders that had happened at the Innocents, and they were always one-and-dones. It was always some pissed-off lover or a jealous so-and-so. But Felix McClickclickclickclick, he was a lonely widower, a superintendent who tried to make right by everyone in this place. Something wasn't right here. We cut to the sun quickly setting in the horizon and the moon rising in the sky to showcase the passage of time. Oh, sorry, I wasn't supposed to read that. Um, that was action and editing written in brackets. That was supposed to take place. Oops, <laughs> don't mind me. The halls were dark and two familiar figures tiptoed through the innocence. The silhouette on the left belonged to Jordan Nightingale. The shadow to the right belonged to Miss Betty Lou Glick. As they passed by each door, they took a single emerald earring and placed it there. Or, if there was enough space between the carpet and the door, they slid the earring into the room. Betty Lou switched things up and placed a pair under some of the doors. It was Jordan who placed that emerald earring in Mr. McClickluckle's room ages ago. He had stopped by to borrow some duct tape for the would-be kidnapping of Betty Lou Glick. When McClickluckle... Oh my god, I just said his name correctly. <laughs> when Mr. McClickluckle... Oh, dang it. Opened... Whatever. When he, the guy went to his office to grab a roll of duct tape, Jordan tossed the earring into the corner of the room. Jordan never did need to kidnap Betty Lou. She was interested in causing havoc all on her own accord. For the past few months, whenever Jordan had visited someone at the Innocence, he would leave a single emerald earring at their place. Betty Lou just recently joined him in his spree. He knew there would be another death. It was just a matter of time and a matter of who. And when that murder was discovered, he hoped one of his earrings was found at the scene of the crime. Because just as Jordan knew there'd be another murder, he also knew the man he hated most in the world would come and try to solve it. And if you think I'm done, you're wrong, because I'm going to keep on going. There was nothing Jordan wanted more than to make solving this crime as difficult as possible for Inspector Nards. The camera pans away from the shadows of Jordan and Betty Lou and oop, ooh, oh, she just tripped, oh. Oh, she just went down on the floor. Oh, uh, <clears throat> the door opens and the camera wanders into the dark. Blue light casts across the body of a woman in bed, twisting and writhing as if she's being tormented. Oh, 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 am I doing it again? Oh, I read the camera action bracket things again. Please don't punish me. <laughs> but if you do, make sure it's hot wax. Daphne, Inspector Nards's secret lover, lay awake as cold blue moonlight cast over her like a shroud. Her eyes were wide, 
so wide. Her irises were islands in the whites of her eyes. They were so wide. They watered, and tears trailed down from the corners of her ducks and slid through her cheek, not through, but down. They actually, no, they slid down her cheek as if they were escaping a terrible fate. No, Daphne murmured. No, 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 no. A large band-aid or a clever patches, Nards and Shimu stays before, covered a wound. It was left behind from when she tripped and hit her head against the bed frame when she ran to turn off her fan. Please, no, Daphne muttered. I, I should have known better. And she should have. Instead of turning on the fan in the corner of a room, she should have just turned down her air conditioning if she was so warm. <laughs> but it was too late. Deborah Cleverpatch, the woman who was killed in this very unit, sank into Daphne's body, possessing her. Daphne, uh, she screamed as blood began to saturate the, the, the well, the, the clever patch that was on her forehead. That was a lot of exposition, my friends. Exposition. At least, I think that's what it is. I didn't graduate college with a degree in English language. I'm just a huge fan of Blinding Innocence, and I've been keeping and recording the history of the show for the past, well, uh, a lot of years. But whatever you want to call it, that was a lot of information with a lot of characters, wasn't it? Usually, one of the best ways to showcase a ton of action happening in a show like Blinding Innocence is using really good music and just showing what all the characters are doing. As a teenager, those were the sequences that got me. I would turn on some hour-long teen sob fest the WB was playing, and whatever melodrama the characters were up to, they would do it to some heartbreaking song by some band we've never heard of. And that band hoped they'd become famous because their song was played right after Dawson and Joey had a big fight on the dock. Oh, those poor bands and their one song played during Dawson's Pond, or whatever that show was called. The good news is that song is probably alive today because some super fan of Dawson's Pond created a playlist on Spotify. <sighs> what are those bands making off those playlists? Hmm, like 10 cents? Playing popular music during the real serious scenes is not something that's beneath the producers of Blinding Innocence. I mean, currently they're trying to secure the rights to play a song by some Australian rapper person named The Kid Leroy? Or at least I think that's... I, who knows? All right, we're actually going to leave the innocence for this next scene and go out to dinner. It seems a very serious conversation is about to take place. Henrik inhaled the essence of the Pinot Grigio before taking a sip. It was ripe, delicate, and juicy. He took a gentle sip of the white wine and swooshed it around his mouth to absorb the essence of the peachy, nectarine, 
horse hair and straw flavors, the smallier said the bottle of Le Wunderbar de Weinerschaften would offer. After he swallowed, there was an unpleasant sensation moving between his tongue and his teeth. Was that hair? How gross, he thought, that the sommelier's hair would end up in his glass of very expensive wine. He reached into his mouth and pulled it out, feeling it slide across his tongue like the tiniest of snakes. Oh, oh, it was brown and curly. Darling, did you get another chest hair in your mouth? Danica mused, taking a sip of her dark burgundy wine. She wasn't in the mood for a white wine. Not tonight. Not when she was going to come clean and tell Hendrik about her conquest. For revealing deep-seated secrets, the sommelier offered Danica a bottle of De Noir Caca von Boutentouche, and she swooned at the name. Pour me a glass of that burgundy nonsense right now, she whispered hungrily into the ear of the sommelier. And here Henrik and Danica sat, light and dark, wunderbar and kaka. Before we even bother with food, I want to know why you invited me out to dinner this evening, Henrik asked. Danica leaned her elbows on the table. I wanted to explain myself, what you saw, what you walked in on, what you ran away from. I know where I stand, he said. I love you. You love your strange conquest. Darling, she said, for so long it's only been me and this conquest. It's all I've ever had, and I've done my best to never let anybody else in. But it seems, he said, that you've let me in. Danica simply nodded. And what is it you wanted to tell me, he asked. She took another sip of her caca wine and reached across the table for his hand. He gave it to her reluctantly. Oh, Henrik, she said, I have loved every minute of time spent with you these past few months, but you must know my conquest is close to its end. Your conquest of... Giving everyone in the building pedicures, he asked. She sat back and placed her free hand on her chest, looked shocked, recovered, and then smiled. You are very observant, she said. So I have nothing to be jealous about, he asked. The only thing you need to be jealous of is someone else's feet, she giggled. (laughs) And what will you do when you are finished? He asked. That's what I wanted to tell you, she said. I have only the top floor now, and once I've given them all the pedicures of their lives, I'll have my final pedicure of the innocence. So you'll be gone in days, he said, turning his face away from her. Possibly, she said. It could be days. It could be a month or two. It just depends on scheduling conflicts, he asked. What of the final pedicure? She smiled and took her hand back. Oh, Henrik, it's my peace de resistance. It's it's the ungettable get. It's the conquest I have always conquested after. Henrik grumbled. Please don't tell me it's the dead 
body of Felix McClucklicko. Danica clutched her literal pearls. Oh, honey, gross. No. What do you take me for? I'm not some necrophilia pedicurist. He asked, is it another man? A man would never be my piece de resistance, she giggled. <laughs> then who, he asked, reaching for her hands again. It's ulcers, she almost shouted, reaching her hand across her face, containing her excitement. His brow furrowed in utter confusion. You're going to give a pedicure to Shady Business's invisible dog? The Innocence is always a busy place, but I think it's time we go and see what George the Doorman has been working through. It can't be easy doormanning a condominium complex of the rich when the superintendent is dead. Who will take over Mr. McClickclickclickclickclickle's job? I do hope it's George. I'm sure George the Doorman instantly thought of himself as the next best possible person for the job. But would that be yielding too much doorman power? He was already in control of so much. Could he be George the doorman and George the superintendent? Someone with that much power could be dangerous. It had been days since Mr. McClure's body had been found, and George the doorman was beginning to get queasy with anxiety as the weight of the innocence bore down on him. For one, that damn spot on the carpet right in front of him returned once more after just another steam cleaning. Oh, I mean, it, it vexed him. And here he was, doormanning to the best of his ability, making sure elevators were ready, assigning lesser doormen to take shopping bags and suitcases from the inhabitants of the innocents. But he was busy scheduling the upkeep of the rest of the building as well. The pool, the windows, and the bathrooms by the pool didn't clean themselves. Speaking of the bathrooms by the pool... The women's bathroom was so nasty, one of the custodians quit this morning. Sir, it was like the body of Snuffleupagus exploded in that one stall, the custodian explained, gagging and crying at the same time. There was just so much brown. That just can't be, George told the custodian. You've caught a sense of the melodramas. You've been around the tenants of this building far too much. Maybe you just need a vacation. The custodian violently shook her head. No vocation will wash the evil from my mind. The custodian untied her apron and handed to George. I must find a new line of work, she said, her eyes blank, and she slowly walked out of the building. George dialed a number and got the head custodian. Jilly, we have a code brown in the women's restroom up by the pool. We need it cleaned stat. Hopefully, Jilly would find a knight from her round table to conquer the dragon mess left behind by. The doors to the innocence swirled open and Beverly Cleary 
not the children's offer, sauntered in. At, at least it looked like she sauntered. Oh, she was trying too hard. The woman should have worn flats because watching her do that walk in heels was obvious. Miss Cleary was injured. Miss Cleary, are you all right? He asked. She stopped, looked at George, and smiled. A little bit of her eyeliner had smudged just under her eyes. I mean, you you look like you're in pain, he said. Mind your own business, she hissed. She reached behind her with her gloved hand. George couldn't tell what she was doing, but he believed she stuck it down her skirt. She shimmied and jostled, and her face cringed in pain for a moment, and then it was back to being blank. George asked, Do you want me to call you a doctor? I am perfectly fine, she said, and walked past. I just strained a muscle this morning, doing my water aerobics. Sure, sure, George said. Water aerobics. You didn't happen to use the bathroom up there, did you? If only he knew where Miss Beverly Cleary got her infamous spicy burritos, he would be able to cut her off because they weren't just affecting her. They were affecting everyone. George returned to his station behind the desk when Inspector Nards walked in. Pipe in his mouth, blue smoke billowing out around him. Sir, George spoke, I needn't tell you once more that the Innocence's lobby is non-smoking. If you want to smoke, you'll need to return outside. Sorry, sorry, Nord said, his mustache wiggling. He turned back around and went outside. Before he reached the revolving doors, the phone rang. <laughs> George answered, You're talking too fast. Please slow down. Another body? Nard spun around and ran to George's desk. George slammed down the phone and looked at Nard's enlarged eye behind his monocle. Inspector nods. The body of Vivica Johnson, a woman who smokes just as much as you, has been found face down in the pool on the roof, and she's still smoking a cigarette. Welcome to the Innocence, where everyone is just dying to live. Will we find out why Jonathan Nightingale hates Inspector Nards so much? What will happen to Daphne now that she's been possessed by the ghost of Deborah Cleverpatch? Who made it look like Snuffleupagus exploded in the woman's bathroom up by the pool? Oh, who am I kidding? It was Beverly Cleary. We all know it was Beverly Cleary. But wait... There's another body. Tune in next time for... Blinding Innocence.